Hey, James, thank you for coming in and, you know, doing so much. Uh, your work is incredible. <laughs> your background is incredible. And, and you know, you're the Dean of Physical Sciences and Professor of Physics and Astronomy at the uh, University of California, Irvine. Uh, you're a researcher, a, a, a paraclarts, a member and former chief of the James Webb Space Telescope uh, user committee. Uh, you serve on the Space Telescope Institute Council. You're the mastermind of this new kind of project. I don't know if we could talk about that. <laughs> um, uh, you also helped launch the UCI uh, um, Edelman Quantum Institute. I just finished the Forbes article on um, 11 experts, 11 top experts in quantum. So oh, I quoted them. So I'm going to add you to that <laughs> list uh, in the future. And, uh, you know, you're definitely uh, sort of the center of the hub of so much. So thank you for coming in today and sharing all of that excellence with our audience. Well, absolutely. It's wonderful to, to get a chance to talk with you today. Really excited. So, you know, my audience is quite mixed. I have scientists in the audience and notable experts and practitioners. And I also have CEOs and investors and things like that. In fact, interestingly enough, when I do posts on LinkedIn, uh, usually the number one, uh, because I track the metrics, it's like CEO or founder or the top two. Uh, so I do definitely have a CEO uh, audience. But my audience in general, uh, you know, they'll be inspired by your background, your career, because you've done so much. And so they'd be interested in, you know, what were the inflection points in your life? Maybe it's when you're young, mm. or mid, um, maybe when you're teens, it could be when you're in in school or, or maybe afterwards or a combination of that, let's say two or three inflection points, which really inspired you and made you this amazing uh, scientist and person that's a bit, you know out there today doing so much. Well, sure. I'm happy to take a stab at that. You know, I think, you know, I think it's, it's useful maybe to start as a, as a kid, you know, when I was younger, um, I've always kind of been interested in, you know, science and math, but um, I was a really big fan of Carl Sagan. Uh, you know, I remember him being on PBS. And um, the thing that I found really compelling about Cosmos and just his viewpoint was this very global, but also cosmic perspective, um, really getting out um, from our own heads in some sense. You know, how do, how do we fit into the, the universe these really big questions about why we exist, why we're here. And I, I mean, there's something very compelling about if we think of the earth, our planet, um, as a small pale blue dot, you know, as Carl Sagan said, in this vast universe, I think it brings us closer to each other as humans. You know, we are this species that's done this remarkable thing. You know, we're only 100, 200,000, 200, 200,000 years old, right? Um, and we live in a universe that's 13.7 billion years old, that's much, much larger than in anything we could uh, sort of experience day to day. And yet we figured out so much. And here we are together on this, this little, little, uh, you know, uh, speck of dust uh, in the solar system. Um, and and we're, we're hanging together and trying to appreciate this wonderful globe that we're on. So I think, even as a child, that perspective, has always stuck with me. And I think it's motivated me to sort of think about well, what are the biggest, most interesting questions that, uh, that we can tackle and what do we need to be doing to 
um, you know, uh, bring each other together and work together towards even more thriving in the future. So that's definitely a part of it. Um, and I think that's what got me on the track of studying physics and eventually astrophysics. And, you know, I I'm a cosmologist. That's why I was interested in things like the origin of the universe and how we got here. Um, but, you know, I think coming to UCI was pretty transformative for me, for me because it, it gave me the chance to not only interact with an incredible group of uh, astronomers and particle physicists here on this campus, but as being part of the University of California system, I got an amazing opportunity to interact with colleagues on all the other campuses in astrophysics uh, and cosmology and physics. And it really opened my eyes to sort of a breadth of approach that we can sort of do things together and build uh, systems of scientists to work towards large and big problems. Um, and it got me interested in academic leadership roles where you can try to play a role in facilitating things that maybe otherwise wouldn't happen. So you can get large teams of people together to do major initiatives in astronomy or to do things with internationally preeminent telescopes that otherwise couldn't be done and cannot be done by a single person, but just require large teams of people all pushing in the same direction to discover things that can't otherwise be discovered. And I think that's influenced me and why I've worked with the James Webb Space Telescope and Hubble's Telescope and even in the UC system with the, we used to run a center on galaxy evolution here. So I think that's another sort of phase change. But but when I became Dean of the School of Physical Sciences here at UCI, it was really my job to sort of think about what are we doing here in physical sciences more broadly and what's our mission? And you know, perhaps the most compelling story I can tell about this role is that, you know, the founders of this school, including Fred Rhinus, who won the Nobel Prize for discovering neutrinos, but also um, Sherry Rowland, who was the first um, scientist to lead efforts that, that won a Nobel Prize in climate-related science for his discovery that CFCs deplete ozone, you know, sitting in you know, this school and thinking about what the mission of this school is, there's a big chunk of it is to do fundamental research that tangibly improves the world, improves, improves the lives of people, and to use a scientific understanding to drive, uh, you know, regenerative activities more broadly. And so I think that that has really uh, lit a fire under me, that sort of legacy of excellence here, thinking big, thinking globally, to try to see what can we do as a globally preeminent institution in a, you know, a large and thriving uh, state to do what we can to tangibly move the needle on this crucial problem of, of climate change. And so that's, I'm focusing a lot of energy on that right now. now that's really fascinating from Carl Sagan to UCI to, uh, I mean, you, you joined UCI in 2004 and then you became the uh, uh, Dean in July of 2019. So that's kind of a journey um and and you know it's it, it, and one as you mentioned the, the sort of interest in science and and the confluence of all these different areas you mentioned that you know your your school has these nobel prize winners you have no, three nobel prizes uh within your group uh you know one in physics for the discovery of the neutrino two in chemistry and, and the first for the discovery of 
the role of chlorofluorocarbons uh, playing in the depletion of the ozone layer, and then and the most recently for developing uh, organic catalytic chemical synthesis uh, methods, they aid in the development of new medicines. It's just really, really, really interesting. Can you can you talk about this idea of uh, bringing together all of these different uh, uh, schools within uh, UCI and your vision for that? And, sure. And yeah. I know some of that maybe you can't talk about it yet. <laughs> well, you know, um, I could definitely tell you about sort of the vision and, and it's a vision that I think a lot of people on campus share um, and the details aren't worked out yet, but I think this vision is something I can't talk about. I can talk about. Um, it's basically this, you know, we're facing this global issue associated with climate change and environmental sustainability. Um, I don't really like to use the word crisis, but it's certainly uh, a situation that we need to pay laser focus to, right? Um, and this problem, because it's global in nature and infects every aspect of uh, you know, how the world works and um, the human experience is not the domain, is no longer the domain of physical climate scientists alone. I think the heart and soul of it is physical climate science. And you know, that starts in our school. We have the first earth system science department in the country founded by uh, Ralph Cicerone, uh, who was a, a friend of Sherry Rollins, uh, an atmospheric chemist who had this vision that in order to really understand what the climate's doing on Earth, you have to think of the Earth as a system. Uh, there's people, there's water, there's oceans, there's the atmosphere, there's animals. You know, this is a system. It's very complex and is interacting. And to understand what the globe, what's happening in the globe, you really need to think about it in this very interdisciplinary way. But even more so today, um, today every single school on this campus from the law school to the business school, to people doing policy, to doing biology, and certainly engineering, information computer science, physical sciences. So this includes chemistry and physics and earth science and mathematics. Everyone is thinking about how climate change is affecting the world and what we need to do about it. You know, there's, there's not any really forward thinking business community that I'm aware of that's not thinking about Okay, what 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 are we what are we doing in a world that has accelerating climate change, right? Um, what are we thinking about in terms of policy implications for understanding how do we navigate the future in a in a world where um, things are changing, where the risk of fires is is higher, or or air quality, etc. So, in recognition of this, we're trying to come together as a campus to have an all-in response to think about how we can work together to tangibly move the needle on climate change in, in a way that really scales globally. Uh, in order to do that, you know, I think there's a recognition that we can't be an ivory tower that's just you know, pontificating to the world the way things should be done, but it's really more of a porous nexus where we can try to be a neutral convener for people coming in from the private sector, from uh, NGOs to government agencies, to policymakers, to thinkers, uh, you know, futurists, um, you know, everyone to begin to think about what can we be doing in this area that really, really, uh, you know, tangibly moves the needle in this space. And I should say education is also key to this. So as an educational institution, we want to play a role in sort of educating the next generation of sort of leaders in this space 
whether they end up on, you know, doing business or engineering or whatever, they have some deep understanding of what's happening in a world with this accelerating climate and they can adjust and, and lead through that change. You know, that's kind of fascinating. I mean, you alluded to this earlier. I mean, the, the law school, I mean, different other schools that are part of this, uh, together with the traditional academic departments of chemistry, physics, and astronomy, earth science, and mathematics. But you've got something like 16 schools. Are they all engaged in this idea that you've got to do this interdisciplinary, sometimes they call it transdisciplinary, nice. uh, multidisciplinary coming together to address this issue? And and then you, I think you, again, alluded to that. You don't think there's anybody else doing this right now, right? I'm not aware of this kind of all-in approach that really is framing things this way. I mean, I'm sure other people are thinking about it because it's sort of natural to try to figure out how to bring people together. But yes, that's right. Every school is involved. Um, leadership of every school is supportive. Um, the other aspect of this that I think is quite unique is it's not actually you know, just every academic unit. It's not just the sort of educational enterprise, but it's also sort of the, from the facilities side and the, um, you know, the side of, you know, the side of campus where, you know, if you think about it, we're basically a city, you know, we have some 30,000 people inhabit this campus. So it's like a small city. We have our own power grid, which is interesting about this campus. We have our own, we sit on our own power grid. We order lots of food. We have transportation issues. We heat and cool our labs and our buildings. So thinking about the, the campus itself as a laboratory for climate solutions that scale at the size of a city, that's also interacting with the power grid from the outside, with our internal power grid, with our own solar panels, with distant solar panels, with how we're going to store energy from day to night. Those are the kind of activities that we think is can be unique because we can treat ourselves as a laboratory for exploring solutions that may work or may not work and begin to figure out how to then scale that up to other city-sized entities around the country, around the, around the world. What fostered this, uh, this idea that, you know, you've got to be all in and, and uh, working together and so on. Is it, uh, is it because of all the data that you're seeing? I mean, is there some trigger points for you or flags that were just too mm -hmm. compelling that you said, you know what, we, we have to address this in some way. Well, I think, I think the thing that's pretty interesting, right, is um, we've had a number of activities on campus where we're trying to bring together folks who care about these issues. Um, and this started with a group that we call Solutions That Scale that started very organically with, with professors that just kind of ran into each other, uh, you know, at a coffee cart and said, you know, we really need to do something big here. Um, and it started with a core group of people that are a little bit more on the STEM side of things. But as time went on, almost by, you know, a friends of friends kind of situation, a larger and larger group of dedicated faculty began to come together and say, you know, this is what I'm turning my research towards too. And really there's this um, environmental justice angle that we need to think about as we, if we're going to restructure the electricity grid um, and the, and the power grid of the, uh, and the energy grid of the, of this country, we have to think about what that means for disadvantaged communities and uh, you know, and privilege, et cetera. So it just began to kind of become obvious that, there were so many different pieces of the campus that had something interesting and important to contribute to this problem. Um, it's not a world where, you know, it's just going to be engineers who fix this problem, because if you're not consulting, you know, people who are really talking with folks out there in the community and the business community, 
et cetera, you're going to fail. You know, you need to have this broader vision, the 30,000 foot view of the situation to really enact things in a way that's that's functional. So I don't know if there was any specific tipping point, but the I think the, the, the realization was if you had meetings around this topic, you had folks showing up with important things to say from every corner of the campus, you know, from the undergraduates to the you know, professors in all the different schools. I, you know, I work uh, a lot with investors and um, with other groups where we monitor globally, you know, what the situation is. And then we try to do good work for, for uh, global impact in a good way. Right. So, uh, you know, and I guess the model being for the benefit of Earth's ecosystems and also for the benefit of humanity. So much broader than just people. Because every everything is uh, influenced by this, do you consider then sort of the Earth ecosystem almost like a living entity in some way, and, and in an abstract way, and that that's where we have to come to the aid of, of what the situation is? I mean, how do how, what's that meta view of, of mm -hmm. the world and climate and where we are today? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very useful way to think about it. I mean, you know, the Earth is you know humanity is certainly a major player. Um, you know, and we are affecting the globe and the, and the globe's climate in a way that I think uh, is kind of unprecedented for a species of, of our size and in the period of time we're doing it. It's, it's not the first time in the history of the globe that this has happened, but we know it's happening. The thing that's different about us is we recognize it's happening and then can do something about it, right? But it's certainly not, it's certainly true that every aspect of the Earth system, the, you know, the, the uh, biology, you know, all life, uh, it plays an important role and, you know, phyloplankton in the ocean are doing, you know, most of the heavy lifting and creating the oxygen that we breathe, for example. Right. So there's, it's, it's a, it's a complex system. We have to think about it that way. We can't think about it in isolation. And there's a view in which the earth, you know, can we regenerate this globe where all life on earth begins to thrive because it's not just human life. You know, if, if other the other parts of the ecosystem begin to collapse, uh, it's bad for everything. You know, it's not, it's not just us. Um, you know, the 500,000 year timescale, the earth's going to be fine. You know, whether we're here or not, the earth's going to be here. Right. Uh, we're much more concerned about the, the, you know, the hundred year, the thousand year timescale where we hope we're here and we're thriving with the other species that we've, that we've evolved to live with. So I'm going to be a little bit more fluid now, uh, reaching into your past and then integrating that with your current work and future work. And so, it's it's going to be uh, very fluid, <laughs> and uh, and just a reminder to the audience, you know, these interviews are unscripted, so James is not prepared for this. <laughs> um, but I, you know, just looking at your background, you you oversaw the recruitment of all of these new faculty members and the the establishment of the UCI Center for Two D Materials. Can you talk about that? Sure. You know, I, I think key to this understanding, oh, let me back up. I am a firm believer that the science and technology are a force for good in the world. Um, and at least they can be if utilized appropriately, right? It's not to say it's the only force for good in the world, but if we are to sort of thrive, I think as a species going forward, I think science and technology has a really fundamental role there, right? And so the Center for 2D Materials is about thinking about really interesting quantum phenomena 
that could happen on sort of the scale of sort of one, you know, atom thick materials or two atom thick materials and what interesting properties can happen as you begin to understand the physics on that very sort of quantum scale. And there's a, there's a belief, right? And, and I think a well-founded belief that the next technological revolution that we will experience will be in understanding the quantum world at that level. Um, you talk about designer materials, you know, can you design materials that are light that can absorb energy and utilize them in some effective way, you know, um, high temperature su superconductivity, um, incredibly high memory storage devices that require very little energy and are extremely small, um, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And so as we invest and think about the next generation of sort of what we're going to need to thrive as a civilization, um, you know, in the next hundred years, it's that core fundamental research that we think, you know, will drive it much like, you know, the early days of quantum mechanics in the early 1900s and early 20th century eventually drove, you know, transistors and the technological revolution, the huge boom that we saw with, with, um, you know, technology and in, in the, in the late 20th century and early 21st century, we anticipate those kind of uh, fundamental advances will drive incredible uh, um, technological advances, you know, in the next 30 years or so. I mean, did you look at things like, or, or, or is, uh, I mean, I don't know how connected you are with the uh, group now, but uh, things like pristine graphene or, you know, these mm -hmm. quality particles like uh, Microsoft and the work on uh, topological materials and things like that, right? Mm -hmm. Top, or topological quantum effects. Mm -hmm. Do you have any views on, on things like that? Oh, yeah. I mean, so this 2D materials lab, a couple of our professors who work in there were sort of the original people who, you know, as as postdocs were some of the people who led those foundational papers where, you know, you sort of twisted graphene and suddenly it was conductive and then it's not, you know, th those are the people who did the work now are sort of standing up their own labs here at UCI. And so we're we're very excited about where that might lead, you know, and sort of, uh, you know, you know, tunable things that you go from a resist, you know, you go from a conductor to, you know, an insulator just with a, just with a twist. Um, so yeah, I'm very excited about those directions. I mean, I think always with fundamental science, you think this could really lead to something major. We're going to tr keep trying to figure it out. And, you know, um, one in 10 times it does, or maybe one in a hundred times it does. And when it does, it's incredible. And sometimes it's just a gee whiz. That's really interesting physics. Not sure what we're going to do with it. And that's kind of where we are now. You know, I think this is why I think government funding of fundamental research is so important because sometimes you have to fund things and, you know, you strike out in terms of technology nine out of 10 times. But when you get that, when you get that grand slam, uh, it means everything. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's the attitude that I have. I think it's regardless of what happens technologically with a lot of these discoveries, we're learning a lot of really interesting physics. And there very well may be some, you know, tangible payoffs that really transform the world, uh, depending on what we figure out what to do. Now, this is related because it's all about quantum science, right? Mm -hmm. Or related to quantum science and uh, or quantum science and uh, technology. There's an idea of, uh, or quantum information science and technology uh, quist. Uh, you helped launch the uh, UCI uh, Edelman Quantum Institute. And, and what are the curious problems? What are the things that you're looking at in that institute? And, mm -hmm. you know, not just today, but where do you see uh, as the big questions that you want answered? 
and then do some crystal ball, what questions will be answered? Right. <laughs> uh, let's say in two years and let's say by 2000. <laughs> well, I would say that, you know, there are a number of steps here. And when you talk about quantum science, you could be talking about different things. You could be talking about interesting materials, sort of quantum materials, quantum sensors, you know, using qubits to measure things you otherwise couldn't measure. But you could also move towards quantum information and quantum computing and sort of, you know, the ultimate goal of incredible computing. There's a there's a another area in addition to the sort of 2D materials space that we have great expertise in here. Um, there's a couple other areas that we're sort of doing interesting stuff, and one is in in an area called spintronics, which is where you're thinking about using you know in traditional electronics, it's the charge of the electron that is effectively doing things right. But in spintronics, it's not the charge of the electron; it's the spin of the electron. It's the quantum spin. You know, each electron can either be an up or a down state. And in principle, you can store, uh, store information with that spin. Uh, and it requires a lot less energy to flip it than it does to sort of move an electron around and generates a lot less heat. So there's a goal that maybe spintronics will be a very interesting way of thinking about doing computing and data storage, et cetera, in the future. As we move towards quantum, uh, quantum computing, for example, an area that we have a great expertise in is in um, computational efforts, classical computational efforts to understand uh, materials. So we have a deep expertise in um, how you simulate sort of conglomerations of atoms and what these materials are going to do when you put them together. And one of the sort of, well, hopeful, obvious use cases for a quantum computer when they are built is uh, simulating materials, simulating quantum systems with a quantum computer in principle is what you want to be doing with a quantum computer. That's a really great use case. And our role, we think, may be in actually not building the quantum computer, which a lot of companies and deep pockets are trying to do that with different technologies. Um, but an interesting thing to think about is what are we going to do with the quantum computers? What are going to be the most interesting problems to try to tackle when we get there? One thing you have to do is test the quantum computer, right? So if you're doing calculation with the quantum computer, how, how do you know if you got it right? So there's going to be obvious test cases that you need a classical computer to run this simulation, and then the quantum computer does the same simulation, and you want to make sure the quantum computing is actually getting the right answer before you then utilize it for a bunch of stuff, right? So if there's a role there, I think, as we begin to sort of build out this structure, those will be the first few things we're going to do. The other thing we're trying to do with ECI, which I think is important if you think about it, you know, you know this, but UCI is a really interesting campus. Um, we're incredibly diverse. We're uh, uh, a majority of our students are the first in their families to go to college, and yet we're functioning at a really high level as a research institute. So it's this very interesting mission-driven aspect. And what we feel as an important mission for the Edelman Quantum Institute is to educate the next generation, the quantum workforce. You know, this country is going to need a bunch of really well-educated people to step into these companies and begin to run these quantum computers or build these quantum materials to create this technology. So we are building programs in quantum science where you can come in as an undergraduate major and be ready to sort of step into those roles. Um, and so that's an aspirational goal of ours that I think could really have the biggest payoff of all because in terms of the number of students we could be educating every year that then go off into the world and thrive and invent new things, I think that's gonna be another role we can play in addition to sort of the core research that's being done in the laboratories. Yeah, and if, if you look at the new act um, that was signed in August, the CHIPS Act, there's, a, yeah. there's funding for this, right? The education side or the 
the building the skilled workforce uh, for quantum computing. So, or, or quantum <laughs> information science. Yeah, the That's timing the is the timing is very excellent. You know, it's excellent. I mean, we sort we sort of were reading the tea leaves and kind of thought that some of this stuff might be coming down, but uh, the timing is excellent. And I think, yeah, everything's well aligned. I mean, people, this is not a secret, right? Um, you know, people who are paying attention know that this is really the future. And so we're trying to prepare for that and, and make sure our students are prepared for it too. You know, it's interesting in 2015, I was asked by a group of CEOs that represented almost a hundred trillion in assets under management, just a hundred of them, by the way. Uh, and the GDP of the world was about like 60 trillion at the time. So it's like 1.7 times the GDP of the world or something. And they said, Stephen, can you look 10 years into the future and tell us the things that we need to look at now? Mm. Um, because we don't want to get caught, you know, like when Apple entered the marketplace and mobile. No, you know, they were not a mobile company, but now they are one of the biggest mobile companies in the world, right? So, um, and I did that. One of the things I mentioned at the time was quantum computing. I said, you're going to have to seriously even look at it now because mm -hmm. of get the lead on it. I remember at the time, people thought I was crazy, right? Because they thought I was an outlier and it's going to be 2100, <laughs> 20, uh, 2200 or something before it became serious. But, you know, I just mentioned, I just did a Forbes article or I interviewed uh, 11 people to get their predictions. And I don't think anybody said it's not going to happen. <laughs> and it's not going to be 100 years from now. I think people thinking that it's going to be in the near to medium term, and, and you know they're going. To, so, what are your views on that? Do you think it's a, it's like the pseudoscience which people thought a few years ago? Or do you think you know this is a reality, and then you know we we really do have to look at it? Right? So, yeah, I mean, I think I guess my take on it is, I expect there to be some interesting use cases for it first. You know, I don't think, I mean, you know this, but you know, it, we're not going to have quantum computers in our cell phones. Uh, <laughs> or anything like that, right? But there will be, I, I expect that there will be some interesting use cases for quantum computers in the not too distant future that will be you know, better than what you can do with a classical computer. And, the, and the, the thing that I think I don't know the answer to is exactly what that's gonna be, right? Is it gonna be in drug design? I think that that might be a little bit farther off. Is it gonna be in factoring? You know, what, what, is it, what are gonna be those first few areas where it's really showing you know, a sort of a preeminent a preeminence compared to sort of the what you can do classically and then and then where are we going to go from there and like i said i think from where i sit i think you know broadly defined quantum design is what would be amazing <laughs> you know, if you could rather than having these really expensive experiments to try to find new materials that are superconducting you can actually just simulate the system on a computer and be like oh yeah this is how you do it blah 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 you know we're gonna um or or whatever I think that would be a really interesting use case. But, you know, if I had to guess, you know, maybe within 20 years, we're really going to have quantum computers doing things that classical computers can't do. Um, and then once that happens, it might then be exponentially fast before we're just, you know, doing everything that way. But, it, you know, I think I think we're all kind of guessing there, but we definitely want to make sure we're contributing as much as we can <laughs> to that very exciting, uh, very exciting area. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I did uh, two recent interviews, one with Humble, who's uh, the director of the Quantum Institute, and it's related to the Department of Energy, and it does work at Oak Ridge as well. And then uh, 
Dongera, who won the Turing Award for his work in supercomputing, yeah. and they already have Exascale, which is a billion billion calculations per second. And, and, and in our conversations, we talk, oh, is Zeta going to be theirs? <laughs> you know, which is a, a, a thousand billion yeah. billion. And, and, and there's this whole sort of tension that you can run these things in quantum inspired algorithms, new ones coming out. So every time somebody claims some test case, which is not practical, but just a set case right. uh, as test case and quantum supremacy or quantum advantage. And then some other research group says, hey, we can run that on us. I can do that. Yeah, right. I can do that classically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sort of this interesting. It's an interesting race. I mean, one question I have for you, and then I think about, you know, Moore's law and as we're what we're doing with classical computers, you know, you know this probably better than I do, but you know, the energy requirements as we keep scaling up are non-trivial, right? And we're going to go back to the climate discussion. You know, what are people saying in that space in terms of quantum computing? I mean, how are we going to continue to sort of accelerate our ability to process data and do all the things we need to do in a data-driven world without you know, uh, getting into trouble with the energy requirements for some of these things? You know, that's a really good question. So, uh, you know, I just did an interview with the um, uh, Sovereign Fund of Canada and they launched something called the Deep Tech Fund. And they've they've invested in quantum, but they're also invested in in photonics and because Mm. photonics has a lot of promise, uh, not just in, in quantum, but in classical computing as well, where you can get a much better efficiency, maybe even get a reduction in energy. There's these um, new 3D stacking technologies using resistive RAM, where you have a deep integration between the the CPU and and internal memory Mm -hmm. Uh, using this new uh, resistive RAM technology. And in fact, I've got an interview coming up with Philip Wong at Stanford, and he's probably the most foremost expert today on this next generation where you can get a maybe a tenfold power decrease and yet it well integrates with things like AI um, Hmm. embedded in the chip and you get this really rapid uh, radical performance increase as well because of this tight integration on the chip uh, almost like a system on a chip you know Mm -hmm. and and you're and you're getting uh you know um scaling even sub-micron right so you know this idea or nanometers, I should say, not some micro, but nanometers. You know, you used to say 17 and then 10 or 7 and then 5 and then 3, and now they're even smaller. And, and and this, I think this 3D idea is really interesting. Mm. And, and, and in fact, I'm an investor. So we're looking at what are some of these plays that are occurring. So I don't think Moore's Law is going to be an, a problem because there's so much work going in all these other novel areas that look really interesting even mm. novel materials that look really interesting uh and so i don't think it's going to be a problem that's fantastic that that's <laughs> yeah that's amazing it, it makes sense as soon as you say 3d it's sort of like oh okay <laughs> we have a whole new dimension to play with right yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, so you know, we we live in interesting, exciting times. Now, I want to mind some of the other work you're doing, and then get to look at. So, uh, I had an interview with Roger Penrose. This is really interesting. In fact, uh, we had him an AI for good. He was the opening uh, keynote, and and um, at the time, Roger didn't know that he had a 20 minute time limit. So, I met him in advance the day before. 
And I said, Roger, can you present what you're going to do in 20 minutes? And and so we we sort of brainstormed and and uh, what we're going to present. In fact, I read all the sort of the major bulk of his research on the plane in advance of the meeting, and I thought it was really interesting. And then I had dinner with him for about 10 hours at another conference. We were both keynotes, and it was really interesting his ideas. Um, and he and he got a Nobel, right, um, mm-hmm. for his work. And you're in cosmology, and he's in cosmology. So, you know, what are what are some of your ideas uh, in that space where it's going? And it'd be interesting. You know, Roger has some really interesting ideas as well. Um, right. And, and so, you know, where we are today, and exascale supercomputing and and deep learning and machine learning can have an impact on all that. You know, there's the uh, James Webb uh, telescope that's going to give a much deeper insights than the Hubble, of which you were a Hubble postdoctoral fellow at Harvard University. So you really understand that element, but you're also then, you know, moved to be chair of, you know, this sort of like the projects that are going to be run on this uh, James Webb uh, Space Telescope. So a lot of ideas combining that together. Where is it we, where are we in cosmology today? Where yeah. are we going to be? Where are we going? Yeah, yeah, where are we going? And And what about some of the Rogers ideas? Or do you think that he's kind of in his own space? <laughs> Well, you know, I think the stuff, I, let me save the stuff that Roger is thinking about for a little later. I mean, I'm going to talk a little bit about the kind of cosmology that I do, which is a little bit distinct from what the kinds of things that Roger does. So I really think of myself as a physical cosmologist. I'm I'm pretty close to the ground when it comes to trying to figure out what observations are telling us to sort of begin to inform our deeper ideas about the you know, what the universe is made of and where it's going and what the fundamental constituents are. So I think right now in cosmology, we have a pretty good idea, at least sort of descriptive idea of what the universe is. Um, but what we've discovered is a little weird. Um, you know, the, the universe, as we understand it now, has a total mass energy density that is dominated by something that we call dark energy. Right. And the other sliver is dark matter. <laughs> and that's different. And then there's a tiny little bit, about one sixth of the mass energy density of the universe is basically everything in the periodic table, everything we've been talking about today. So the rest of the universe is made up of this stuff, which is actually distinct and at some level kind of not particularly well understood physics. What this is telling us is that the universe is richer and deeper and, um, you know, governed by, you know, things and forces and particles that are very, very different than what we can easily interact with as humans. And, you know, it shouldn't be, you know, one thing is you hear this initially, and sometimes the immediate reaction is that sounds crazy. How is that possibly true that there's all this mass out there that's different than anything we can detect? But, you know, what's to say that this species of ours, us, we should have evolved to detect everything in the universe. You know, we we detect the things we need to detect. We can detect visible light with our eyes because our sun shines visible light. We can't detect infrared light with our eyes. And it took us a long time to figure out there even was infrared light. And now we have to build big telescopes to study infrared and build cameras to look at things in the infrared, right? So there's all kinds of things out there, including photons of weird wavelengths that we can't easily interact with. There's neutrinos that are out there that we can't easily interact with, but that we've discovered. 
And what cosmology is telling us is that the universe itself, the construct of the universe is much stranger than the stuff we've been evolved to interact, we've evolved to interact with. Now, the deep questions today are, what the heck is this dark matter? The thing that I'm trying to figure out, you know, what is this dark matter stuff? And what's up with this dark energy? They're two different things. The dark energy is what's driving the universe, not just to expand, but to accelerate in its expansion. And the dark matter is the stuff that remarkably is dominating the clustering gravity of the universe. And without it, we don't think any galaxies or planets or us would exist. We have a lot of evidence that it's there, but we don't know exactly what it is. Now we have a standard kind of understanding, sort of a basic model that does really well, that sort of lays out the percentages and the characteristics of the dark matter, dark energy that I described to you. But what's interesting with Webb right now is there's some initial observations that happened right when the telescope turned on that were very surprising and difficult to interpret in the context of this picture of cosmology that I just laid out to you. So the very first time the telescope turned on, we saw some stuff we didn't understand, right? And it's all, it's, oftentimes it's like this, right? When you, when you look somewhere you never looked before, oftentimes you discover something you weren't expecting. And so it could be that as we continue to study the universe with Hubble, I mean, sorry, with Webb and measure how fast it's expanding and begin to look at the very earliest galaxies that formed after the Big Bang, it will tell us that, okay, something very different must be going on with what, how dark matter is clustering in the early universe or how dark energy is making the universe expand um, right now. So the things that I'm trying to work on are sort of close to that. It's sort of looking like in a very kind of empiricist way, our models say this should happen. We observe this other thing to happen. What does that mean in terms of our understanding of how the universe works? And let's build off of that sort of very observationally driven stuff in the context of, you know, we think we we think general relativity is correct right now, but maybe it's not. We'll see if those observations are going to tell us it's broken. Uh, we think we understand the laws of particle physics, the way particles should interact, but maybe that's going to break at some point. You know, it's trying to utilize these kind of cosmological observations to inform our understanding of this universe that we cannot see, most of it we, we cannot see directly. We have to study it indirectly with these, these telescopes and colliders and things. So maybe, maybe we'll explore a, just a tiny little thought experiment. You know, sure. I can imagine a, a parrot sitting on a fence and that parrot is not contemplating quantum gravity collapse and quantum mechanics and cosmology and dark matter and so on. And that's because of constraints or what I believe are the constraints within that pair, right? Mm -hmm. Or, 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 or Corvids, which are uh, quite advanced, uh, sort of a type of birds uh, that are out there that can problem solve. But then I think of humans, you know, we have 85 billion neurons, we have 125 trillion synapses. And if you include this idea of microtubules, Maybe maybe we have an octillion uh, kind of computational capability, but that there's a finite limit. And and then you introduce this idea that you know, and it's kind of like Fenwick's idea that we're we're a lens, so we only we're a filter. We only can conceive of what we could conceive. So maybe in in a, cosm a cosmology sense, we're that parrot on a fence, and and there and it requires some kind of computational understanding that we're just at level one and you need level 100 to be able to do you ever think of that that or yeah I, about it i should say that we just don't have the mental capacity unless we use some kind of language or uh, uh, 
large uh, machine uh, learning model that's in the trillion, hundreds of trillions, and then it, it can identify patterns that we just can't even conceive of. All right. Yeah, I mean, that's it's certainly possible. I think there's an Einstein quote that, you know, something to the effect that the most the hardest thing to understand about the universe is that it's understandable, right? I mean, it's, I got it wrong, but it's something like that, right? It's, it's an, you know, sort of what I was alluding to before that, look, like we're this species that evolved on this planet, uh, you know, over the last couple hundred thousand years. And somehow we're equipped to sort of ask, not only, you know, ask these questions, but at least come up with some answers to where we are in the universe and begin to construct models that explain what we see. You know, I think the scientific process so far is we really have constructed these models leveraging mathematics, you know, which is a you said an amazing, you know, amazing tool that was either discovered or invented, depending on the way you think about it. Um, and these days, you know, I think you're exactly right that we are leveraging what we can do with really sophisticated computation, the sort of artificial intelligence, uh, these sort of algorithms that are somehow able to learn, you know, and maybe we'll learn even faster in the future. Um, we leverage all the tools we can um, to develop these, these models that, you know, they're sort of like the, you know, the shadows on the wall of the cave. I mean, you know, uh, we, we've imagined, you know, create these, these models that re that, that predict what the, what the shadows look like on the wall of the cave, but where they were actually seeing <laughs> the reality is, is a, you know, is a deeper, really interesting philosophical question. And so, you know, a question becomes, you know, what could we ever do? You know, could we ever, are we only ever just constructing a model that does better and better at sort of explaining what we see without getting to fundamental truth, whatever that means? Um, or is fundamental truth the only way, the only way we can even define fundamental truth is that through, through models that we can predict what's going to happen and then we see it happen and that's as good as we can do in a very kind of utilitarian sense. I think that's a really deep question. You know, I think if we do see advances in artificial intelligence that that are that transcend what we're doing now, you know, beyond way beyond pattern recognition and, and speed of calculation, that can truly learn in ways that are useful, um, you could see it. But then, you know, one question that I, you know, that you might ask is, what does it mean for us to understand something? You know, if I have a code that I can run that predicts what's going to happen. Does that mean I understand it? Do I understand it in a way that I find fulfilling? Or do I need to understand it in some kind of human way that allows me to gain sort of deep intuition for it? And then I kind of understand it deeply in my heart and then can apply it, right? I mean, that's that's kind of a philosophical question, but you know, I think as we move towards a world where we're really reliant on the sort of the machinery and the sort of simulations to predict things, then the question of what it is, what is the role of the scientist and the human in that? What are we learning from that? If we, if all we really have is a black box computer program that tells us what's going to happen, what are we doing? So for me, I think about that a lot. Like when I run a simulation and what, in the end of the day, an, a galaxy is there that looks about like a real galaxy. Does that mean I understand how that galaxy formed? Yeah. Well, my computer seems to understand it, but do I understand it? And then what can I do? You know, how can I learn from that? Right. So I think this is something that I think about a lot. Yeah, and we're, and we're in the perfect time for all of this and the realization of, of all of this. Um, uh, this is the last question, and and uh, you're probably uh, sensitive to time. You probably have something coming up at, in, in, in a few minutes. So uh, I guess the final question is, what are your recommendations to the audience? Oh, 
Well, I mean, what, what do you mean in terms of what to read, what to think about, you know, anything? Open, open platform. A recommendation. You know, I mean, I, you know, I'll go back to what I started with before. I do believe that a, a really deep understanding of sort of the core science of things is going to be important for the world moving forward. Um, beyond a descriptive sense, really, really at sort of the qualitative both qualitative and quantitative understanding of, of why we think things are happening. So if you're worried about climate change, you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you that the science of climate change is not that complicated. Um, you know, a lot of people say, well, I'm not a climate scientist. I don't know what's going on. There's some basics to what happens with greenhouse gases that an intelligent person can sit down and think about for a little while and begin to understand what the repercussions are. It doesn't mean you understand everything. But I guess a recommendation of mine is to dig in a little bit to the details beyond the sort of surface level of, of what's happening, to think about sort of the, the core science that might be driving things that are important in our lives. Because I think not only that's where sort of understanding comes, that's where nuance lives, but that's also where maybe the breakthroughs are going to live. And of course, you always have to work out the complex realities beyond the sort of basic science behind things. But my deep recommendation is to sort of center yourself on the sort of deeper understanding of the core phenomena um, rather than trying to start, you know, at the surface. Uh, if you're at the surface of something that's interesting, try to sort of burrow down occasionally to figure out what's really happening at the, at the bottom. And then I'll conclude just with some additional data about you, James. You're a chancellor fellow. You received two UCI Celebration of Teaching Awards. You're a fellow of the American Association of Advancement of Science and dot, 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 you've done so much. So my recommendation with your really uh, thoughtful recommendations is that I recommend the audience follow your work in UCI and the awesome stuff that's <laughs> happening there. So, oh, Well, thanks so much. You know, this has been a wonderful conversation and uh, I really appreciate the opportunity. It's been fun. Can't wait to do it again sometime. Okay, take care. Thanks a lot. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the brand called You Videocast and Podcast, a platform that brings you knowledge, experience, and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website, www.tbcy.in, to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for the brand called You.